everything around us is affecting us emotionally and intellectually. Well, that's what sculpture actually does. It's way outside of this sort of utilitarian world, out the necessity to make boring forms. We're testing the material, but what we're really doing, we're testing our emotional scope. We're testing our brains to see how much stuff, how many fantasies or dreams or thoughts we can get out of the material. That's all it is, really. Today on The Big Interview, we'll be talking art, its form, the magic and science of creation, and what happens when you make a sculpture you like so much you simply won't let it out of your studio. The British artist Tony Cragg is our guest today, one of the giants of contemporary art. For the most part, a sculptor whose work takes, replicates, bends, and makes us look afresh at natural and man-made forms, and then astonishes us with the thoughts and emotions they both unleash. In the 1970s, Cragg was using pallets, tea crates, any old bits and bobs, really, to make arresting sculptures that made the everyday seem totemic. He went on to make work that might look like moon rocks smoothed by millennia of lunar winds or tree trunks smoothed like Japanese enamel. Things are beautiful, but never quite what they seem. Craig was born in Liverpool in 1949, studied in London, and has lived and worked in Wuppertal, Germany, since 1977, where his studio is a gargantuan production line, archive, and light industrial park that, as you'll hear, seems still to fill him with glee. Craig won the Turner Prize, he's represented Britain at the Venice Biennale, and his work sits in all the world's finest public and private collections. I'm Robert Bounds, and I spoke to Tony Craig for the big interview. Well, Tony, thank you very much for joining us. I understand you're preparing for an upcoming show in Florence. And you mentioned that it's mostly a show of drawings. And I I read somewhere that you draw every day. I suppose it's the immediate artistic instinct, isn't it, to make a mark on the paper. How does that ritual happen every day? Is that a kind of roll out of bed and pick up the pencil? Or is it a part of, is it a sort of sacramental thing? Or is it just a sort of very natural thing that you do every day? I think it's just part of the course of the day. There's something ritualistic about it. It's just, I mean, they're not always drawings. I mean, they're not like drawings that I'm going to put on the wall and sign no, They're just drawing is part of, you know, I mean, how to, it's easier to draw certain things than it is to make them. So just getting into that, it's a good step forward. And then you find out you can't possibly make what you've drawn because two dimensions are very, can be very illusionary, <laughs> as we know. And so, you know, get into making them. So it's always a, a backwards and forwards between, you know, what I want to do, what I'm trying to do. And there are different kinds of reasons to draw. I mean, sometimes it's just very basic. What kind of form do I want to get out of this? Sometimes it's also just a drawing, which is very regular here in the studio, just to show my assistants exactly what I intend to do while they're working on the material with me. And they just that so we understand what we're up to. And then there are just sometimes where just something that catches one's attention and you think, well, that's how it looks in nature, but what happens if it, if you have it in your own hands, what would you change with it? And I suppose that turns out to be a sort of an exercise in observation on one level and exercise in what possibilities you have of, of that kind of abstract interpretation of what you have in front of you. So that's, there's all sorts of reasons. It's really, I mean, in my book, I hate to say it's something special. It's just, you know, it means like, doing the job. 
Yeah, well, it's amazing. I mean, well, it's easy for you to say, Tony, I suppose. But I wonder, these obviously, as you say, not all of them end up on the wall and get signed. But half of them, I suppose some of them are, as you say, technical sketches for your, your team and yourself. And some of them are preparatory sketches, I suppose. Is there a point at which it leaps off the paper and becomes material in your hands and becomes plywood or bronze or, or polystyrene or something? They may well do, but I mean, the thing about drawing, I mean, it's, it's with everything to do with material. The minute you start, I mean, the drawing is two-dimensional. So if you have two points on the page and you want to join them up, of course you could do the straight line or maybe a curve or a double curve or maybe something very, very complicated between one point and the other. But you could, as you suggested, leave the page, go through the table, through the space, through the room, outside of the building. I mean... So you suddenly get an impression that to just join up two points in space, there are infinite possibilities. And that's really, when you start to get into that, you realize this has no end. Then you have to think about it in terms of working with a piece of clay. There's nothing you can't make out of that. I mean, there's a myriad of millions and billions of different forms. The problem is, would any of it mean anything? And I think that's really the job we have. I mean, it's just making stuff, looking at it, seeing what kind of emotions and thoughts one has while one's doing it and then when it's finally achieved. And I think that's really, you know, people always have said, where do you get the ideas from? Well, I'm not so sure I have so many ideas. I'm not even very keen on ideas in art. I mean, they, there's a lot of very good ideas that make really terrible art. Sometimes it's all the reverse is possible as well. So you have this, this different, there's no kind of proportionality to ideas and interesting or good art. But at the same time, you become aware of an immensity of possibilities. What happens on the page gives me ideas. What happens on the page gives me every change of form and line and volume and shade. It gives me a different, a different emotion, a different thought. And, and that's really what one's doing, you know? Yeah, how easy? I mean, it's as you say, anything can happen. The two dots on a page, anything can happen in between those two dots. Anything can happen with a lump of clay, piece of wood. The potential is infinite. How do you kind of stay on the rails within what you want to make? Or is it a sense of planing and planing and planing away the wood until something, you hit that eureka moment? It's a chain of decisions you make along the line. There are junctions, there are a bunch of interesting and more crucial decisions one makes when you're doing a drawing or a making something. And the work I'm doing now is based to some lesser or greater extent on my experiences with the last work I was making. And I realized that oh, you can, so it's not a case of copying or trying to remake what I've already done. It's the path you take. You get to a junction, you, you have to go in a particular direction. That is a change that changes the form and it changes the meaning of what you're doing. Had you taken the other decision, then you would end up with a different form and a different meaning. And when you're making stuff, that's what you're aware of all the time. Small decisions and then the big decisions. The more you dig away at it, the more you become aware of more possibilities. And the thing is, as soon as you've learned something, it doesn't really help you <laughs> because then you, it, what do you want to do? You don't want to get into sort of a routine with things, you know, which you do automatically in life. We all are creatures of habit, perhaps, as you certain things you just learn and you can't get them out of you ever again, you know. But the thing is, when you actually do it, I mean, my whole working life has been 
I'm always really surprised I've ended up here, what I'm doing now. You know, I, I, I mean, I turned the, just turned, turned the camera around just so you can have a, a brand new look at it. And this has just come in from the foundry and I'm just looking at it for the first time since yesterday. I'm thinking, Tony, <laughs> I would never have my life imagined I was going to make that work. And, and so that's probably why I do it. <laughs> well, that's wonderful to see this. Thanks for showing us that, Tony. Looking at your face on the Zoom call here, it's lovely. It's a picture. I can see that you, that's a beautiful work. You've, you're pleased with that one. Where did that, what's the story of that? I mean, I'm just generally, I mean, people are always asking me what materials and there are endless amounts of material. And at least, I mean, since the beginning of the 20th century, there's been a whole process of providing, you know, new materials for making sculpture with, or even more particularly in redefining sculpture as a way of looking at the physical world, the material world and giving it meaning and whatever. And there are no boundaries anymore. I mean, people... Bruce Nauman spits a fountain in the air with his mouth and it's, that's a sculpture and Gilbert and George are sculpture artworks. And we know that there are no, there's DNA and there's, so, so actually there's kind of formal possibilities have become endless and immense. So really, it's really a question of finding out what it's, what it's about and what, what things have, have some importance for oneself personally. Now there is a history of making works in steel. This starts more or less 1917, Tatlin making out of industrial materials that have built the railway bridges and the Eiffel Tower and stuff. So he makes all these constructive things with I-beams and steam plates and whatever else, sheet metal. And, and then it goes on, it goes on through Mark de Souvre and Richard Serra and Chilida and, and Anthony Carras. So you have all this whole history of steel making with sculptures. But the vast majority of it, you can still see the industrial format behind the word. So I've been making these models of stuff in polyurethane. The ones I'm looking for have actually moved away. This is typical of my studio anyway, to never find anything here. <laughs> anyway, using polyurethane sheeting, I just made these very yeah, forms that I then intended. And I don't look, look at the work again if you want to. And you see, you just can't make that in another material. You couldn't make it in bronze. You couldn't make it in wood. So every material has its own range of possibilities and things you can do. And there's, there's another one. So th this is brand new kind of work for me. And, and, and that's what I, the new kind of generation of non-industrially formatted steel sculptures. That's <laughs> <laughs> They look, I mean, they look beautiful in the studio. And looking at your backdrop at the moment, we should tell the listeners is is a is a huge, um, it's an, an amazing amount of wealth of stuff. <laughs> it's pandemonium around at Crags, and I wondered about that. Well, they look so wonderful. You have such an intimate relationship, presumably, in the, with them in the studio when you're making them, when you're making the models when they come back from the foundry, when you have to kiss them goodbye and send them off on their travels. What does that feel like when you when you've really there are presumably things that you don't want to let hold of that you kind of pretend aren't quite finished because you just love them having them around, right? You know, I mean, the thing is that I mean, in this particular case, I'm I'm actually preparing an exhibition in New York in a gallery. Museum shows are fantastic because you know usually you've got the work is there, you've made it, and you make a selection and whatever. But gallery exhibitions are really they have an, a, a different 
dimension in, of course, you go back to a gallery with new work. I'm aware of having started a dialogue with the public. You know, I have this privilege of being able to work in the studio. We have these experiences material, and I'm very, very happy based by my working space on, on sharing that with people. And so we'll get into this kind of relationship. And obviously, I don't want to think about these people. I don't want to think about the reception of the work. But, you know, I mean, gallery shows always have have a bit of an edge to them. Yeah. I wanted to go back. And I know that you said this before in, in, in other interviews, but you talked about being a boy in the south of England and finding fossils with your brother. A lot of your work has obviously... I don't know, and I've seen films of you holding these things in your hands, these treasured possessions feel like they're from another world. Tell us about that. I mean, were you, where, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in the Jurassic Coast in Dorset or somewhere? Or... <laughs> Which like to me. I might look like I'm from the Jurassic time, but no. <laughs> uh, I, uh, no, no, I mean, I was born in Liverpool and everybody assumes that I grew up there and you, did I ever meet the Beatles? No, I didn't. I was there for three weeks of my life beginning and my father was initially when I was very young he was in the fleet air arm and so we moved around he was an electrical engineer working on airplanes in the military and then a little bit later he was working on civil aircraft he worked on the Comet on the Trident on the Concorde and the Airbus I went to seven schools and therefore you know always being the sort of the odd person out and so you get used to you know just what is it, accommodating or whatever it is for the, those kind of situations. Yeah. And the constants of being anywhere. I mean, we lived in Scotland, we lived at Lossiemouth, we lived in Yeovil, we lived north of Brighton, we lived in Wellington City. Is that you just become, other than the people in the situation, you become very aware of the landscape and the things around you, the, the, the nature around you. And it's so it really was a comparative thing. I mean, if you move from place to place, in one way, it's a constant. Because a ploughed field is a ploughed field is a ploughed field, but there are no ploughed fields like we can say. You know, they're so, there's always something different in them. And uh, I think that's what started it off. When I was a student, I had the opportunity. I'm a great admirer of artists like Richard Long. I love, and that whole thing that like, really re-established in my mind that to be near nature, to be in nature, to learn from not just civil society and cities, but also to combine those two worlds together. I'm not, I don't want to be so in the nature that I become a kind of romantic, you know, that that's not my idea. My, I'm a much more sort of, maybe I'm a little bit hard headed and I want to mix it up. You know, it's like, you know, a punk in paradise. I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't quote me on that one. Yeah. And I mean, and, and your work looks so good in nature. I mean, it looks great outside. You're sort of retur- it's returning to the form from which it came, but I know that you'll be interested in the construction of things, the cellular, the kind of the patterns of the cellular being, as opposed to the th- you know, let alone the thing itself, the construct itself. That's why I mean the whole thing about you know sort of representation. Or I don't want to represent anything. I'm not gonna. Mm. I've never made a horse, a bird, or a figure. I mean, it was maybe as a student as an exercise, but that's really not just reproducing something doesn't interest. So that's a very vain, you know, um, oh, I can make things as well as nature makes. Of course we can't, that's rubbish. My first thing was always, what can I do with material? And when I do stuff to it, how does it feel? And what, do I, what ideas do I generate in doing it? So it's very, very simple. And then when you actually start to look at stuff, and as you just said, I mean, then you start to get into an awareness of the internal structures of things and the things that 
are simply generic in everything, but with a few variations become very particular. And that is what, that's what becomes so incredible. I mean, atoms are all little circular and balls, the stuff like very, very simple in one way. But once you start putting a few things together, you get very, very, very incredibly complicated combinations. And that's maybe chemistry or physics, if you like, but that's the same with everything. Everything you look at has this easy perceptual level, and then it just becomes, it, it, it's always like sculpture and other things around you. They're always a portal. They're a doorway to the universe in a way. That's how I see it. So you see, uh, when it's one of your works or you see something in nature, you see pebbles on a beach or whatever it might be, there's something there, there's something cellular. You've got this sort of, it's almost like the, the idea of x-ray specs where you can see into the thing in, in a way, you know what I mean? There's a nice, a nice way of seeing it. There's an x-ray or you know, some super binoculars. I don't know what it is. I mean, it just makes you, if you accumulate the sort of your experiences with materials, everything you see will take you amazingly from the banal, there's a chair in front of me here. And then very, very quickly you're into something which is really, yeah, cosmic actually. <laughs> Sounds pretentious, but that's what it is. And the materials, I know you've always been about the materials. Your work has obviously changed over the years from the stacks. In fact, t tell us about because th those, I love those works. You were using sort of everyday materials in inverted commas. You know, and it, but they giving the impression of time and of fossilization almost. It was like seeing a, a kind of cross section of a of a piece of mantle of the Earth's crust or something like that. And that obviously shares lots of things in common with the accretion of layers and layers of things that work in your current some of your your sort of plywood works and wooden works now. Did you kind of have a change of was it just a sort of slow sort of evolution in your in your work or was it was there a moment when you kind of a new form suddenly presented itself to you. Suddenly, suddenly that sketch in the morning became something different. Well, you know, I had the opportunity and the privilege of having a really good education in Britain. I went to really good art schools and met a lot of people that sort of had fantastic conversations with. So as primary as my work is just dealing with material, I had this very good education, I feel. So that one learns to think about things in a, kind of more analytical and complicated way because of where when I started in 1968, 69 in art school, I mean, I knew nothing about art history. I just wanted to draw and I just wanted to make stuff. I had, I really didn't know about anything. And very, very quickly, once you're in art school, it's very difficult to explain to anybody how much you learn in art school, but it really is. It's a super experience. You learn to look at things and think about things, to use your eyes and see the world and think about it on a completely different way. It was an amazing experience. I started at that time in Britain, there was, you know, Henry Moore and then Anthony Carroll, then Richard Longfield and George. So the super high level of, of interest in sculpture already before Tony Craig even made anything, you know, and so I knew it was about, I had that feeling it was about something important. And I mean, I'm part of discussions and people get very heated and whatever and think, wow, okay. And you realize there's real content. I mean, the, the, the thing was about form and content. There was an enormous battle between sculptures, make sculpture making and the ready-made. And basically the ready-made was a super important thing in the 20th century because it widened the scope of materials that we could, it made sculpture into 
a study of the material world, not just interesting things that you kind of make. So it was a really big step. So as a young person, a 20 year old person, I was immediately absorbed by the new, the new things, by the way, you know, Joseph Boyce and Gilbert George, all these, all the people that were just actually just making work was very near to life in a way. So the ready-made was the big thing, pop art, arty pauvre, um, uh, zero, all these movements, they're basically, they'd all be based on ready-made things after the Second World War. So I started work without even really an great analysis. I just started to make work on that basis. I was also a poor student. I had no money to buy any great materials. So it really suited me just to pick stuff off the ground or go and look for things and make things. So I, I made work and, and, I, and it really was the most valuable time I had in my youth to do those things. But even doing that, even in the 70s, in, when I was still a student, there were other friends like Richard Deacon and Bill Woodrunner around, you know, I think we realized this whole ready-made thing had its limits in a way, because, I mean, there is only a certain number. It's an infinite world. You can, you know, just bringing in a soup can and a rabbit's foot and a fluorescent lamp bulb out of the real world and bringing it into the art context. You can only do that to a certain degree. And in fact, time has proved that to be so, because I mean, you get really, you know, Damien Hirst doing fantastic things with the, but he had to get so radical bringing animals in as ready-made, people using photography to bring landscapes as ready-made. I mean, so everybody's artists have developed that much, much further than the ready-made thing, but it's gone beyond that. You don't think anymore they're ready-made, but I had a period when I just started to exhibit in the early eighties and I'd done a lot of exhibitions in about 1980, I think 1980, 1981, I did an average about 12 shows a year, traveling places, doing stuff quickly. It was more like a performance and installation than anything else. And I was just quite frankly, after three years, more or less exhausted. So uh, my parents died and my marriage came to an end <laughs> all very, uh, yeah, sounds dramatic, but it's, uh, it was a, not, not the easiest of times. And then I just suddenly realized I can't go on like this and uh, just arranging stuff. And I found if I was going to get any further, I'd have to change the forms. I'd have to. And I was looking at the materials, collecting all this plastic stuff. And the first thing that occurred in this work with new stones, which is just a spectral thing. Obviously, the color of the plastic was one way of looking at it, the way it was one characteristic that kind of you could sort it in. And, but the other thing also that really struck me with these plastic things, all these geometries, dumb industrial geometries, circles, angular, flat, straight lines, really dull, dumb form. And I just started thinking about the world around me. I mean, I mean the buildings and the pavement and you know, living in England in these awful little houses with these little bricks and poor isolation and badly made windows. And, and then there are streets and rows and rows of houses like it and streets and houses and cities like that. You think of this awful industrial monotony of stuff. And it's, I mean, that's, I love Britain. I'm, I'm an English person and I, I have a British person I and I have a great affinity for everything in our country, but at the same time, we can't help but be critical about it, you know, and about certain aspects I mean, it's, and it's materiality. It's sometimes when you're growing up in the fifties was pretty appalling. I mean, if you weren't of a well-to-do family, the materiality of Britain was lousy and it still is. If you go out to the West 
and the north and the northeast. I mean, but that's that in a way that started me making. The, let's find out to make things about the fundamental structures of making stuff. You know, about why does this boring, cheap, lowest common denominator culture of making stuff that had short lives and would you know you have to every form. You know, I'm looking at your face, you're looking at mine. Everything you see on my face, everything I see on yours, we're reacting to. Every you blink, you smile, you change your face. This is we're reading form with an enormous accuracy and with all every reading in a second in tempo, a very, very fast change. We're actually changing our ideas about each other and emotions about each other and whatever else is. But that's the face. That's, that's obvious. That's a sort of signal. It's a panel that sends a lot of, but the body does the same. You know, how we're standing, how you're moving, how you gesture. But then also, damn it, the furniture we're sitting on and the floor and the curtains. Why would we spend any time even considering how and where we live if it wasn't like that? Everything around us is affecting us emotionally and intellectually. Well, that's what sculpture actually does. It's way outside of this sort of utilitarian world, out the necessity to make boring forms. We're testing the material, but what we're really doing, we're testing our emotional scope. We're testing our brains to see how much stuff, how many fantasies or dreams or thoughts we can get out of the material. That's all it is, really. It's fascinating, Tony. That's amazing. That's so beautifully put. But what, yeah, I wanted to ask you about your work is often about adding, adding layers and layers and layers. A lot of people, there was a time when sculpture was understood as taking a piece of clay and taking a piece of marble and always subtracting from it to get the form. Your your forms are, are made by adding, aren't they? Is there, a, and you, you talked about ready-mades and how art progressed to the, or sculpture progressed to the 20th century. Was there a period when sort of sculpture went from, or your understanding of it went from being a subtractional to an additional kind of art. I mean, you're dead right. I mean, that's what sculpture traditionally, and that's what it is. Either subtractive, you bang things away till you've got the form you want, or you add stuff in terms of clay or plaster or whatever. But actually what I've been very sneaky in doing, if you make assemblages, as I, you were talking about the stacks that were mm. brutally built, I could build them up and take them down. You know, I mean, it was both additional and subtractive until I got the form I wanted. And I've tended to do that, actually. You know, I mean, I use a lot of plywood. I mean, very heavy plywood. I mean, uh, 50 millimeter, five centimeter thick plywood to do that because I can build it up in layers and it's all just screwed together. And I don't like it. I, want, you know, I get the wrong kind of thing out of it. Then I'll take it all back down and I'll build it up again until I actually, so it's, I'm cheating on this, uh, this refusing to be kowtowed by this either subtractive or additive. I keep changing it until, and that has actually led to maybe a degree of complexity in, in the work in general. And, you know, I mean, everybody says, oh, you know, what program do you think of this program? The only program I have is between my ears, I'm afraid. And we use, you know, we use technical, I use technical things for making molds and making work larger and putting forms inside each other. But actually almost all I do is based on, first of all, the drawing and then, then working with the stuff, working with the materials here. So, And just finally, Tony, you, to go back to setting up, preparing for this show in Florence and what sounds like another large show in, in New York, at the Gallery in New York. 
what's that is that is an anticipatory time do you know exactly what you're going to take what's going where or are you still kind of are you still the person with a piece of paper trying to join those two dots somehow at this at this point no not in terms of doing in, in making the work i've just started a lot of new work this summer that's really i haven't seen yet i really don't know exactly how this is all going to turn out so i think i've said this i mean the, the museum exhibition is it's a museum exhibition. It needs to be planned and it needs to be right. precise. When we come to the installation, we just do the best job we can do. I mean, I, I think that that will be fine. That exhibition actually is quite explicit. I did a large exhibition five or six years ago in the Bobbly Gardens in Florence. And doing that, this is very generous, I think, of the city to invite me back to do another exhibition. But... This is much more about the relationship between drawing and and the forms that I develop out of the drawing. So it's really what we would been just been talking about on some on some level. But the gallery exhibition is always not. I I wouldn't say I'm nervous, but I'd, I'd be in a state of anticipation until the whole thing's installed. Definitely, yeah. Tony Craig, thank you very much for joining me here on the big interview on Monocle Twenty Four. That is it for this edition of The Big Interview. Thank you to our producer, Emma Searle, our editor, Jack Dewars, and our researcher, Lillian Fawcett. From me, Robert Bounds, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>